turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. There's a lot going on in the world right now. The president sat down with students, parents, administrators, educators, concerned citizens for a very long conversation on what to do about violence uh, on elementary and high school campuses across the country. It was a meaningful meeting in which the president sat and listened to the heart-wrenching stories of students who were there at the scene in Florida, others from previous uh, schools where shootings had taken place, parents who've lost their children, some of these young uh, people who lost siblings or dear friends. It was a, a meeting that um, was difficult to listen to, but very necessary. The president solicited, what do you think we ought to do? What solutions are you interested in pursuing? With a promise that minutes after that meeting concluded, he and others would begin the hard work, the long hard work of coming up with solutions to the problem. Today is also the day that Billy Graham was called home to be with his Lord and Savior, the one he served faithfully for many, many years. In fact, we're going to spend much of today's program reflecting on the life and legacy of evangelist Billy Graham. Graham, born in 1918, died this morning, 2018. We're also going to share a conversation I had earlier today with Albert Moeller. He's the author of The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer, A Manifesto for Revolution, encouraging us to take very seriously the command of Christ to pray. In fact, um, he takes the, the Lord's Prayer uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, and reflects on the theology and the meaning of each one of those phrases, calling us away from prayerlessness and back to obedience to Christ and spending time in prayer, uh, at, uh, addressing the question of what's the purpose of prayer? What is it that we are to accomplish during that time? It's a very small, easy to read book, but it's packed with um, great resource to call our hearts back home to prayer. Uh, and we'll talk with him about that in the five o'clock hour. Well, as a young boy, Billy Graham dreamed of becoming a baseball player, but all that changed at a revival meeting in 1934 when the lanky teenage boy walked the aisle and anticipated um, a life quite different, accepting Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, I want to pause for just a moment. And for those of you who are followers of Christ, do you remember the day that you made the commitment to follow him? I grew up in a Christian home, but the day I remember that I made a personal commitment, I sat in vacation Bible school. I had been invited by a neighbor to attend. It wasn't my church, but I remember the invitation being given and taking that seriously, recognizing my need for a savior. And that moment changed the course of my life. And for Billy Graham, as he walked down the aisle and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and savior, that changed the trajectory of his life. Ironically, he would make a name for himself inside baseball stadiums, not by winning games, but by winning souls for Jesus. Now, he wouldn't accept that uh, phrasing because he recognizes that he simply offered the message and it's the Holy Spirit's work that brings people to Christ. But you get the idea. Well, over the years, Billy Graham shared the gospel message to more than 200 million people in 185 countries. The North Carolina farm boy went on to counsel kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers. And popes, I would add. But in his, uh, in his heart, Billy Graham was always a simple tent revival preacher with a life-changing message. It was a message that transcended politics and religion and race and bank accounts. It was a simple message that God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And that's how Billy Graham lived his life, foregoing fame and fortune for the sake of something much greater. It was something George Beverly Shea sang about during those historic crusade meetings. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by his nailed, pierced hand than to be the king of a best domain and behold, or rather be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide things. I'd rather be true to his holy name. 
America's pastor died today at his mountaintop home in Montreat, North Carolina. He was 99. And I can only imagine what it must have been like in heaven today as all the folks who walked the aisles at those crusade meetings embraced the North Carolina farm boy who wanted to become a baseball player and say, welcome home. Billy Graham was a good and faithful servant. Well done. His son, Franklin Graham, wrote this about his father. Dear friend, my father, Billy Graham, went into the presence of the Lord on February 21st, 2018. The Bible tells us in Revelation 14, 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Well, many have said that his death ends an era, but he would be the first to say that when God's ambassadors die in Christ, the Lord raises up others because the preaching of the gospel will go forward until the end of the age. God's blessing continues as he opens doors for the gospel around the world. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association remains committed to preach the word in season and out of season across the globe. My siblings and I would appreciate your prayers in the days ahead as we honor a man who served the Lord with his life, loved his family, was always grateful for God's faithful people who supported him in the work of the ministry in Jesus' name. As we lay to rest this very public ambassador, please pray with us that the testimony he leaves behind will touch many lives and point them to salvation in Jesus Christ. My father's journey of faith on the earth has ended. He has been reunited with his mother and has stepped into the eternal joy of heaven in the presence of his Savior in whom he placed his hope. If you would like to know more about his, uh, my father's life, share a memory or read public visitation uh, details, please go to billygram.org. God bless you and thank you for your prayers for our family and the staff of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Also posted on the Facebook page, uh, we have a Billy Graham legacy uh, link that leads to a number of sources. You can hear old sermons, you can see video, you can uh, read something of the history, uh, 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 line items of where he preached and to how many. Again, over 200 million people in more than 185 countries across the globe. Now, Billy Graham has gone on to his reward, but it is left to us to be inspired certainly by his example, but to be motivated by the Holy Spirit within us and by the charge given us in God's word that we are to take the gospel to wherever God might send us. Now that might be for you across the street to a neighbor. It might be someone across the aisle at work. Wherever um, you are being sent, it is left to us to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel faithfully so that others, uh, when their day comes and they're called home, uh, they too can be um, received by Jesus into uh, into their reward. As I mentioned uh, throughout the program today, we're going to hear. Uh, different uh, elements of his ministry, reflections, and so on. Uh, in our next segment, we're going to hear an obituary that was put together by Salem Media that uh, is an overview of his life. We'll share that with you. And then uh, we're going to share some classic Billy Graham audio from Crusade Highlights. And I think you'll enjoy hearing that voice once again, the fiery preacher uh, that um, turned the world upside down by preaching a very simple gospel faithfully and living a life that was consistent with what he preached. Finally, we we're going to hear the 95th birthday, um, uh, I guess it was a sermon, uh, to America. It is uh, the, the evangelist's final message for America, uh, and we'll share his final words to the country he loved so dearly and cared uh, deeply about. All of that coming up this hour, followed by a conversation with Albert Moeller, author of The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer, A Manifesto for Revolution. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This morning at the age of 99, Billy Graham departed this world into eternal life in heaven, prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, whom he proclaimed for nearly 80 years. He's going to be missed by the family by his colleagues, faithful ministry partners, and yes, many around the world. But what joy he has to be welcomed by God the Father and be reunited with his mother in the presence of Jesus who speaks peace to eternal souls. We want to share with you the obituary of Billy Graham prepared by Salem Media, and here it is. This is an SRN News special report. The life of Billy Graham, a servant of God. Here's SRN News correspondent Greg Clugston with a look back at the man and his ministry. 
Over the past half century, Billy Graham was the most well-known Christian evangelist in the world. Peace will prevail and Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the day I'm looking forward to. Graham preached the gospel to more people in live audiences than anyone else in history. Over 210 million people in more than 185 countries and territories. His influence reached far beyond the church, touching the lives of millions of people in untold ways. He was a regular fixture on the Gallup organization's most admired polls. A friend to American presidents and foreign heads of state, this country-born preacher traveled the world over with a single purpose, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Graham said his one purpose in life is to help people find a personal relationship with God. I cannot argue anybody into the kingdom. I cannot debate anybody into the kingdom. There has to be the preparation of the Holy Spirit. The preparations of the heart are the Spirit, says the Scripture. Billy Graham was born William Franklin Graham, Jr. in 1918 near Charlotte, North Carolina. He was the oldest of four children. Billy's father was a successful farmer and businessman. Both of his parents were Christians, and the family attended church on a regular basis. At the age of 16, Billy committed his life to Christ after attending a series of revival meetings held by a traveling evangelist. During his college days, Billy was baptized at a Baptist church and began his lifelong membership in the Southern Baptist Convention. He earned a theology degree at Florida Bible Institute and, from 1940 to 1943, attended Wheaton College in Illinois, where he not only graduated with a bachelor's degree in anthropology, but met his future wife, Ruth Bell. After pastoring his first and only church, Graham joined Youth for Christ, speaking at youth gatherings in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. He was seen as a rising young evangelist and eventually began to hold his own rallies. In addition to his preaching duties, Graham served as president of Northwestern Schools in Minneapolis for five years. During this period, he gathered several key members of his evangelistic team, including popular soloist George Beverly Shea and choir director and master of ceremonies Cliff Barrows, members who would stay with his ministry for decades. Thanks to his engaging personality, his creative style, and his unquestionable passion for preaching the gospel, Graham became well-known within the country's evangelical and fundamentalist circles. The crime, the fraud, the immorality, sex perversion, all of these things are gripping our society right now. And unless there's a reversal, we could see God's judgment fall upon our country and fall upon the world. In 1949, a crusade in Los Angeles thrust Billy Graham into national prominence. The landmark evangelistic campaign in L.A. drew record crowds, 350,000 people. It lasted seven weeks and resulted in the dramatic conversion of many people, including a prominent disc jockey. He hosted rallies in major U.S. cities and expanded his preaching stops to Africa, Asia, South America, and Europe. Graham's name recognition grew rapidly thanks to media coverage. In November 1950, Graham turned to the broadcast medium for mass evangelism. He launched the Hour of Decision radio broadcasts, still heard on hundreds of radio stations nationwide. And today, again, I'd like to welcome you to the Hour of Decision with Billy Graham. In 1951, Hour of Decision broadcasts were expanded to television, and Graham formed a film ministry later called Worldwide Pictures. Graham founded Christianity Today magazine in 1955. He also authored a syndicated newspaper column, and his ministry published Decision magazine. In the 1980s and 90s, television was used to reach increasingly larger populations, culminating in the 1996 Global World Missions satellite broadcast with an estimated potential audience of two and a half billion people. And in my travels around the world, but especially in the United States, I find that the great Achilles heel in the church today is the lack of prayer. We don't pray enough, and we don't pray with the right attitude toward in our hearts. Graham wrote more than two dozen books, all of which became top sellers, including his 1997 autobiography, Just As I Am. Throughout his career, Graham was honored in both the secular and religious arenas. Recognitions ranged from the Congressional Gold Medal to the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. He was regularly listed by the Gallup Organization as one of the ten most admired men in the world. 
Unlike some popular American preachers, Billy Graham and his ministry were never subject to scandal. T.W. Wilson, a childhood friend of Graham's and a ministry associate, said Graham adhered to a strict code of conduct. Billy will not uh, be alone uh, in a room with his secretary or ride alone in a car with his secretary because, you know, he takes the scripture literally. It didn't say avoid evil. It said, avoid the appearance of evil. Wilson went on to say that Graham was always concerned about protecting his testimony. Despite his widespread appeal, Graham had his critics. According to the Billy Graham Center archives at Wheaton College, the evangelist offended different people for different reasons. Fundamentalists accused him of ecumenical evangelism that corrupted the gospel message. Liberal Christians often wrote that Graham didn't care enough for helping to ease social problems. Some attacked the Crusades as mechanical spectacles, and others felt he was too close to world leaders. This was especially true in the 1970s because of Graham's friendship with Richard Nixon, who was then entangled in the Watergate scandal. Billy Graham had a long-lasting and unique relationship with U.S. presidents. His White House connection dates back to President Truman. He viewed his contact with presidents as an important ministry opportunity. It has made me very conscious of responsibility because I felt I would never leave the office of one of them without having witnessed to them about Christ. In a 1998 Oval Office interview with SRN News, President Clinton discussed the value of his relationship with the evangelist. He's a very great man, but he has great uh, feeling for other people. He, he doesn't have an arrogant bone in his body. He has a great sympathy for the human condition. and He lives his Christian testimony probably as well as anyone I've ever known. The Reverend Billy Graham participated in nine presidential inaugural activities dating back to 1965. His final such appearance was in January 2005 for the second inauguration of President George W. Bush. Our Father and our God, we thank you that the last event of this historic week is a time of worship, a time to hear your word, to pray, and to declare our dependence on you. We acknowledge your divine help in the selection of our nation's leaders throughout our history. And we believe that in your province, you've granted a second term of office to our president, George W. Bush. In 1992, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association announced that Graham had Parkinson's disease and would be easing back on his busy schedule. I have a few things that uh, are wrong with me physically which comes to as you get older. In 2000, Graham's son Franklin was appointed CEO of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And in the summer of 2005, Billy Graham held the last of his 417 crusades. And tonight, I want to say it's great to be back in New York. For three days, the evangelist preached before huge crowds in Flushing Meadows, New York. Are you ready to die? Whether you're a young person here today or an old person like me, you'd better decide for Christ here and now. During the New York City rally, Graham acknowledged that this would be his last official evangelistic crusade. I'm getting too old to do this. This may be the last time I'll have an opportunity to preach the gospel to an audience like this and to have Cliff Barras here and George Beverly Shea. Graham was preceded in death by his wife of 64 years. Ruth died in June 2007 following a long illness. Her death came just a few weeks after the formal dedication of the Billy Graham Library, which was attended by former Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Carter. Billy and Ruth Graham had three daughters, two sons, 19 grandchildren, and numerous great-grandchildren. For more than 50 years, they made their home in the mountains of North Carolina. In November 2013, Graham celebrated his 95th birthday with the release of another book and a 30-minute TV broadcast called My Hope America. There is no other way of salvation except through the cross of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. From the age of 16, when he became a Christian at a revival meeting until the final day of his life, Billy Graham dedicated himself to God and to the preaching of the gospel. I don't expect to live forever, and I'm ready to go to heaven. In fact, I'm looking forward to it any day. This has been an SRN News special report, The Life of Billy Graham, a Servant of God. We'll continue our look at the life and legacy of Billy Graham in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our reflection on the life and legacy of Billy Graham. The once fiery preacher was known for sharing the gospel in a very clear way. As President Clinton put it, he, he led his life, his Christian life, and his testimony in a way that was consistent. We wanted to share with you some classic Billy Graham crusade highlights. And here, Billy Graham as a young and older man. Now, you can't change your past, but you can determine your destiny by deciding for Christ. But Christ can change your past. He died on the cross so that all the sins you've ever committed, all the things you've ever done wrong are forgiven. What do you have to do? You have to repent of your sins. That means to be willing to change your way of living. You may have no power to do it. You may not have power to give up some of those habits you know are wrong. You may not have power to fall in love with your wife again. You may not have power to change your whole life that you know needs to be changed. But if you surrender to Christ, he'll give you the power. You say, well, Billy, I don't know what else to do. I've been baptized. I joined the church and so forth. But I don't really have peace and joy and power in my life, all that you're talking about. How do I get it? Jesus Christ said, I am the way. Come to Christ. He will give you a new strength and a new power and a new joy and a new peace and a purpose for living. Every person that ever lived has to make the same choice. It's either the world and its pleasures and its gods or it's Christ. Which is it for you? Who are you choosing? Who are you voting for? Choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Oh, yes, there's pleasure in sin for a short time. But it's soon over. The hangover comes. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's going to be there. Choose Christ. And there'll never be a hangover except joy and peace. And it's an urgent decision because to delay makes the right decision harder. Indecision in itself is a choice. Not to decide is to decide not to. If you have a ticket for a flight to Atlanta tonight and can't decide whether to go or not, if you wait past the departure time, the choice will have been made. The plane will take off without you. Decisions are made whether we make them or not. Time decides if you will not. And time always decides against you. There's a lonely arena in the depths of your heart where the greatest battle of life must be fought alone. That's your decision about Christ. Your parents can't make it for you. The church can't make it for you. Your friends can't make it for you. Your girlfriend, your boyfriend can't make it for you. You have to make it yourself. Now, you've been told that you ought to be a Christian. You've been told that you should live the Christian life, but you've never been told how. I heard about a lady that said that she had a wonderful pastor. She said, my pastor's a wonderful minister and he's a wonderful pastor and we all love him at the church. But for the life of me, I cannot figure out what he wants us to do. Well, tonight, I want us to see something about living the Christian life. But first of all, first of all, I want us to see what is a Christian. What is a follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, there are many people that have an idea that if you're born in a Christian country, that you're a Christian. Many people have an idea if you have Christian parents, you're automatically a Christian. But the Bible says you cannot inherit Christianity. It's not by flesh and blood, nor the will of man. There is nothing that you can do to automatically make yourself acceptable to the kingdom of God. You can go to church. You can live a decent life. You can be a good, moral, virtuous person, but that does not make you a Christian. You can have uh, Christian characteristics, but that doesn't make you a Christian. There are thousands of people in America tonight that think they're Christian, but in actuality, they are not Christian in the narrowest sense of the term. They've never been born again. They've never received Christ into their heart. And if they died, they would not go to heaven. Now, a Christian is a person that has had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person 
that has made a decision for accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. You've accepted Him. You've committed your life to Him. Now, the first thing is a Christian is a person that has made a choice. You've made a decision. You've had an encounter with the living God. You've received Christ into your heart. That is the first step in being a Christian. Has that happened to you? Has there come a moment in your life when you repented of your sins, when you acknowledged that you're a sinner, when you said, Oh God, I'm willing to turn from my sins, and then by faith you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Now that's the starting point. Oh, there are many people that are trying to live the Christian life, but Christ doesn't live in their heart because a Christian is a person in whom Christ dwells. The moment you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and gives you a new moral nature. And you have power and you have strength to live the Christian life. Now, no one can live the Christian life until first he's been to the cross and received Christ as Savior. Christ died on the cross. Christ shed his blood for our sins. But you must come and receive Christ. That is an act of your will. Intellectually, you say, yes, I believe, but that's not enough. Emotionally, you might have had emotional experience, but that's not enough. By your will, you must say, I will receive Christ. I will give my life to Christ. But then, after that, something else must take place. The second thing is, a change must take place in your life. The Bible says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There must be a definite change in the way you live, a change in your attitude, a change in your attitude toward God. You must love God supremely. You must put God first in all the choices and decisions of your life. There must be a change in your attitude toward yourself. No longer are you egocentric. No longer are you selfish. No longer is everything done just for self and to please self. There must also be a change in your attitude toward your neighbor. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And so there must be a change in your life. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I heard about a man one time in the olden days that used to hitch his horse in front of the saloon. And he was converted to Christ at a Methodist meeting at the Methodist church. And the next day he came to town, he hitched his horse in front of the Methodist church. And the bartender came out and said, what's the matter? You've hitched your horse here for ten years, and now you're hitching it over there. Why? He said, I was converted last night. I received Christ. And he said, I've changed hitching posts. And that's exactly what we should do. Change hitching posts. And if there is no evidence of a change in your life, then you better check up to see whether you're really a Christian or not. Because if your life hasn't been changed, if you're not bearing the fruit that God gives you when you come to Christ, then you better start doubting whether you really met Christ or not. Because the child of God, a change has taken place. Jesus said, by their fruit shall ye know them. By their fruit. What are the fruits? The fruits of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and all the others. Are you living the Christian life? Have you given yourself to Jesus Christ? Do you know that you've had this encounter with him and has a change taken place in the way you live and in your attitude? If not, you may not be a Christian. You may be living in a fool's paradise. You may think that you're a Christian, but you're not because a Christian is a person that has received Christ and a change has taken place in the way he lives. Thirdly, a Christian is a person that has accepted a challenge, the challenge of Christ. Christ said, if any man will come after me, let him deny self, take up his cross and follow me. In Moscow tonight, thousands of young people are being challenged. I'm glad to say that the American young people, as far as I can gather, that are there have not accepted the challenge of communism. But communism is challenging millions of young people. Jesus Christ also offers a challenge. He says, unless you're willing to accept my challenge and to live for me, you cannot be my follower. Oh, in our churches today, we're busy building astronomical figures 
to turn in our reports and all of that is fine and good, but Jesus was busy eliminating people. Every time a crowd collected around Jesus and the crowd got too big, he said, wait a minute. He said, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to deny self. That eliminated one crowd. Then if the crowd was still too big, he'd say, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to take up a cross and follow me. Well, that eliminated most of the rest of them because they didn't want to go to the cross. The cross was the electric chair. The cross was the gallows in that day. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to take up your electric chair. You'll have to take up your place of execution, the unpopularity that comes with following me. And most people are not willing to do that. Most people are not willing to take their stand for Christ. Most people are not willing to stand up and be counted when it comes to surrendering to Christ. I ask you tonight, are you sure that you're a Christian? Are you sure that your sins are forgiven? Are you sure if you died you'd go to heaven? Are you sure that you're ready to meet God? In the strictest sense of the term, I ask you tonight, are you a Christian? Are you sure of it? If I had a doubt in my heart tonight that I was ready to meet God, you couldn't drag me out of Madison Square Garden till I'd settled it. That was Billy Graham in 1957, speaking from New York, Madison Square Garden, preceded by a 1986 address in Tallahassee, Florida. Classic Billy Graham. Up next, we're going to hear his uh, final message for America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. On his 95th birthday, Billy Graham offered a final message for America. Here's what he had to say. As I look back over my life, it's full of surprises. I never thought I would become friends with people in different countries all over the world. I see how God's hand guided me. When I began preaching many years ago, it was not with any thoughts that I'd be preaching to large audiences. Come to the cross. His gospel is for everyone. God has done this. Our country is in great need of a spiritual awakening. Well, there have been times that I've wept as I've gone from city to city and I've seen how far people have wandered from God. Of all the things that I've seen and heard, there's only one message that can change people's lives and hearts. There is a way if you come by the way of the cross. I want to tell people about the meaning of the cross. Not the cross that hangs on a wall or around someone's neck. We receive our freedom purchased by the ransom at the cross. But the real cross of Christ. The cross expresses the great love of God for man. It's scarred and bloodstained. His was a rugged cross. His real purpose for coming was to die. I know that many will react to this message, but it is the truth. And with all my heart, I want to leave you with the truth. God says, I love you. I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. And he loves you willing to forgive you of all your sins. The cross is offensive because it confronts people. Even so, it's a confrontation that all of us must face. look out across an audience when I stand up to preach and I think of all the people with their different backgrounds and their various needs and I know that they are objects of God's mighty love to the point that he gave his son his only son to die upon a cross and the cross was the most terrible form of execution by the Romans for criminals. And Jesus endured all that in our place because of our sins. We deserve the cross. 
We deserve hell. We deserve judgment and all that that means. I know that there are many people that dispute that. People don't want to hear that they're sinners. To many people, it's an offense. The cross is offensive because it directly confronts the evils which dominate so much of this world. One reason that the cross is an offense to people is because it demands, doesn't suggest, it demands a new lifestyle in all of us. Sin is a disease in the human heart. It affects the mind and the will and the emotions. Every part of our being is affected by this disease. How can we break this bondage? How can we be set free? God helps us break those chains. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. He can make you a totally new person. On that cross, God was laying on Jesus our sins. They not only put nails in his hands, but before that, they'd scourged him. A Roman scourge was a terrible thing. They took whips and pellets on those whips and beat a person almost to death. And then they took that cross and made him carry the cross, which was in his weakened condition was almost impossible. But he carried that cross to a place outside of Jerusalem. And then they put nails in his hands. But that was not the real suffering. The real suffering is when he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that terrible moment, he and God, the Father, were separated. He shed his blood, and the shedding of that blood carries with it God's very life. There is no other way of salvation except through the cross of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The only way to the Father, Father God, is through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, why Jesus? He's the only one that was born into this world without sin. But more than that, he was the righteous one. And when you come to him, you're clothed in his righteousness. God no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your own heart. He sees Jesus. When you come to Christ, you come by the way of repentance. Repent means to change, to change your way of living and turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and say, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I know that you're the only one that can change me. Today, I'm asking you to put your trust in Christ. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer, sentence by sentence, after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you've died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins. I repent of my sins. I invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you. 
as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. He's alive! I've given my life not to a dead Christ, but to a living Christ. And he's given me a song to sing. He's given me a flag to follow. I have reason for existence. I know where I've come from. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. Do you? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Lord's Prayer is one of the best known prayers in scripture. We often recite it, but the question is, do we understand what we're saying? When you think back, the disciples who heard this prayer for the very first time, the words of Jesus, the prayer had to have been something of a thunderbolt. It was a radical new way to pray and it changed them and it changed the course of history. But for many of us, it's pretty much lost on us. Well, in his new book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, Dr. Albert Moeller, he dissects each line to share rich theological truths about the character of God and his desire to have a relationship with his creation. Found in the heart of the Sermon of the, uh, on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer was taught by the person most qualified to teach about that prayer, Jesus himself. Its words were carefully chosen to reveal the appropriate way to communicate with the Father. It's the shortest prayer in the Bible, but the words are powerful and for radical change and the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. Well, Dr. Albert Moeller is an author and professor. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He holds a BA from Stanford Uni- from Samford University and MDiv and PhD degrees from Southern Seminary and is the Joseph Emerson Brown Professor of Christian Theology at Southern Seminary. He hosts two programs, The Briefing and Thinking in Public. He's the author of many books, including He Is Not Silent, Preaching in a Postmodern World, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters, and and uh, many more. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. We're talking, of course, about the Lord's Prayer. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for being with us today. Georgine, it's always wonderful to be with you. Thank you. You quote in the introduction of the book, Gary Miller, who has uh, written some helpful resources on prayer and goes so far as to argue that the evangelical church is slowly but surely giving up on prayer. I guess it goes to the heart of why you've written a book on the Lord's Prayer and whether or not we today believe that prayer is relevant, important, or accept that we're walking in disobedience if we fail to engage in it. You know, I found uh, getting ready to uh, to teach the Lord's Prayer and to, to write on it, I, I found a lot of encouragement from the fact that even the disciples of Jesus had to ask Jesus how to pray. In the Gospel of Luke, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray, even as John the Baptist taught mm-hmm. his disciples to pray. And that really encourages me because uh, that, that quote you mentioned from Gary Miller, uh, I think there are a lot of Christians who are very frustrated with their prayer life. They're confused. They don't know how to pray. And, uh, well, thanks be to God, Jesus himself taught us how to pray. So we ought to pay a lot of attention to that prayer and, and to how Jesus taught his own disciples to pray. Let's talk about the consequence of failing to pray. I mean, it, it, there's something lost in us and for us if we fail to walk in obedience in this area of prayer. What do we, what do we lose? What do we give up? You know, Georgine, that's so true. Just, th- just think of, a, of the relationship between a child and a parent. How could that relationship be healthy in any sense if there's not constant conversation and communication? Now, God speaks to us in His Word, the Bible, first and foremost, but He also calls us to come before Him in, in prayer. He speaks to us in Scripture. We get to speak back to Him in prayer, and Jesus tells us how to do that. And, and furthermore, we're missing the fact that uh, it, it's, a, it's a command, by the way. Prayer mm-hmm. is not a suggestion. It's a command. And, uh, but it's a command, like all of God's commands, that comes with a blessing. I mean, we don't know who we are as, uh, as God's children by Christ uh, until we learn how to go to Him in prayer and, and to find that just an indispensable part of our lives. Yeah. You write that prayer is difficult, and like anything of great value, prayer takes great effort, tremendous care, and spirit-filled discipline. Before Jesus engaged in teaching His disciples how to pray, um, He taught them how not to pray. And maybe we should begin there. Some things we need to avoid in this uh, effort to uh, walk in obedience in the area of prayer. 
you know, Jesus taught his disciples not to pray in a way to draw attention to ourselves. That's important to know. We don't have to clamor to get God's attention. He, he wants us to come to him as his children in prayer. Jesus said that we're not to just use empty phrases and pile up words. I, th- I think we've all heard people pray, in which we can just be honest. It sounds like piling up words as if God's impressed with the sheer volume. Instead, it's amazing. Jesus gave us a prayer as a model that can be prayed in 20 seconds. Now, it doesn't mean that our prayer life is to be limited to 20 seconds. It, it, it is, however, very clear that Jesus says, look, you can get right to the point. And, uh, and he says, so when you pray, go into your closet, not to be seen. It's a personal relationship with your creator. It doesn't mean we literally have to be in a closet, but it does mean we're not praying to be seen. We're praying to be heard by an audience of one. And uh, what and then the Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is just stunning. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Jesus didn't tell us to pray this way, we wouldn't dare pray this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you uh, point out that um, as we're called to pray, uh, that the prayer itself raises a host of theological issues. What are we trying to do in prayer? Are we trying to convince God to do what He otherwise would not be inclined to do, or are we trying to negotiate with God? W- the primary question is: What is the purpose in our praying? Well, the purpose in our praying is, first of all, obedience, and I really appreciate you asking the question. The first, uh, the, the first reason we pray is not because there's something we want to get out of prayer immediately, but rather it's, it's like a father summoning his children. We, 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 we go because he's our father. And, uh, and, and then we realize, how amazing is it that the Lord God, creator of the universe, invites us in Christ to pray to him as our father? It's just a stunning thing. We wouldn't dare do it if Jesus didn't tell us we could pray that way. And, uh, and, and we pray because uh, God uses prayer in order to make us Christians uh, in developing, that is, mature Christians. He grows us into discipleship, uh, partly by means of prayer. And so uh, to, to miss this is to miss this, one of the central acts of a faithful Christian and one of the greatest gifts God's given his, his children. The subtitle of your book is um, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. Why is the Lord's Prayer revolutionary? And perhaps we don't hear it in the same way because it's so familiar that the disciples did when Jesus first uttered those words in answer to their question. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's clear the disciples didn't at first even understand what Jesus was saying. He said, when we pray, you, you, when we are to pray, our Father who's in heaven, may your name be made holy, hallowed be your name. And then we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means the end of, of Caesar. That means the end of every principality and power. That means that at the end of the day, it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that is, that is the only reality. And we're praying to see that right now. We dare to pray, regardless of who's president or, or who's Caesar or prime minister, regardless of what is happening in the world, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that means right now on earth as it is in heaven. That's just astounding. And, 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 and no matter when or where we pray it, it, it means the end of every political power that would oppose him. Mm-hmm. Now, we begin um, authentic prayer with acknowledging um, God the Father and hallowing his name. Let's start at the beginning, as Jesus uh, said, this is where we begin in our approach to God as he invites us to, uh, to pray. You know, I don't have the right on my own as a rebellious, sinful human being to call God Father. Uh, to be granted that privilege is just unspeakable. And Jesus says, because you're mine and because the Father is my Father, uh, you go before him and you pray, our Father. Oh, and by the way, that our means the most important unit. It's not the first person singular. It's not my Father who is in heaven. It's our Father. And you know, that's so important because, Georgine, that means that if we are faithful as Christians in praying, we're praying with every faithful Christian who's ever lived. It's, it's the, the, the prayers of all of Christ's people. Uh, we're praying together, our Father. And then we're saying he's in heaven. It, it, it points to the fact of his transcendence. Hallowed be your name, which that's a language we don't use too much anymore, but it means may your name be made, be made holy. And that means visibly holy. That means, God, we want your name to be famous in the earth. And uh, wow, that's quite a prayer. Well, isn't it, though? Um, you point out that um, we should make note of one last important feature of this passage. We do not name God. He names himself. And uh, this may seem like an odd observation, but it has enormous theological implication. Explain that. Well, God doesn't say uh, through Christ that we are to pray to him merely our parent who is in heaven, but rather our father. He names himself as father. And, uh, and, and of course, we know God doesn't have a body. That doesn't mean that he's male, but it does mean that he gave us one picture to think of 
and uh, and and that's the fact that he is our heavenly father and uh, that's just really important we don't get to rename him you've got uh, feminist theologians saying yes. look that's patriarchal and and we ought to call you know god the divine parent or whatever he didn't name himself the divine parent he named himself our Father, who is in heaven. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller, his latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And perhaps as we revisit the prayer and think more deeply about what Jesus is actually saying, we can appreciate more fully what it means to approach the throne of grace in prayer. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller. His latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, uh, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And he takes the prayer word by word, phrase by phrase, and helps us to fully appreciate what Jesus taught his disciples and by extension us uh, in how to pray. Now, Dr. Moeller, uh, the uh, prayer goes on to make reference to the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. What does that mean uh, when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come? You know, it means that we are declaring, first of all, the fact that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will be the the only reality eternally that will last. And we're we're praying to see it. Uh, You know, we we pray your kingdom come. And and then the next words help to explain what we mean by that. Your will be done. God's reign is where his will is absolutely obeyed. We're praying to see that take place. Uh, and, you know, Georgine, one of the first things is that's what every church should look like. Every single church, every single Christian family, every single Christian marriage should look like an outpost where the kingdom of heaven is becoming visible. And uh, there's something really sweet about that. I I think it's really encouraging to, to Christians to know that we're not just praying that his kingdom will come in the day of judgment. We're praying that his kingdom will come in our lives, in mm-hmm. our families, in our marriages, in our churches right now. And that is such a radical idea because it's not only uh, indicating that his kingdom is coming and being born out in us, but it's also declaring, as you mentioned earlier, that an end is coming to the world and its system. And that has to be very threatening to those outside of the kingdom. Absolutely. And and, and furthermore, it's one of those situations in which uh, we better be careful what we pray for. We better not pray that unless we mean it. And, uh, and of course, Christians do mean it. We, we, we pray to see God's kingdom come. And, and look, that means a mighty reversal. Just look at the parables of Jesus. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. When, when God's kingdom comes, things are going to be ordered radically differently than they are according to the kingdoms of this world. Let's talk about forgiveness. Um, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about forgiveness? Well, you know, it gets to our need, and it points out that one of our most important needs is for God's forgiveness. You know, in in the New Testament, John tells us that if we confess our sins, he, meaning the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says that we need regularly to pray that God will forgive us our sins, our, our debts, our trespasses. But the word debt is really important there because it's the picture of our sin. Uh, we, we are in debt to Christ, a debt we could not pay. And, uh, and then if we have experienced God's grace in Christ uh, through his atonement, then uh, we are also to demonstrate that to others. So we're told, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. That's, that's a powerful indictment, a, a humbling reminder. Oh, absolutely. Let's explore this. Give us, um, give us this day our daily bread because we are very independent. We're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We provide for ourselves. We have an independent streak. And uh, what does it mean in the context of the Christian faith when we say, give us this day our daily bread? You know, I know exactly the point you're making, Georgine, and you're exactly right. But we we have the uh, appearance, the illusion of self-sufficiency. In reality, uh, we can't make a single seed give forth uh, a grain. We we, we can't make anything. We we take it for granted we can go to the the supermarket and get whatever we need. But the Bible was written to people, the vast majority of whom – uh, we're in what we now call food insecurity. Uh, th- th- they did not know where their next meal was coming from. And and we're in a position, we should be thankful for that, where we, we do have uh, 
uh, a lot to eat. But we need to remember where it comes from, and we need to remember how fragile that is. All, you know, Americans thought that they had the food problem licked, and then the Dust Bowl came mm-hmm. in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, we, we can find ourselves hungry very, very quickly. But, you know, Jesus pointed out, in, in fact, he said, you know, worry less about your stomach than about your soul. Uh, the, the hunger of our bodies is actually pointing to an even deeper hunger and uh, that's a spiritual hunger. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the more um, puzzling phrases in the Lord's Prayer to many is the the notion that uh, we pray, lead us not into temptation. It implies perhaps that otherwise we would be led by God himself into temptation. Explain why Jesus included that in the prayer and what he's telling us. Yeah, you know, it's helped here. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. So in the book of James, we're told that no one who sins is going to be able to say that he or she sinned because God tempted him. And, And the language is important here. I love the King James Bible. Uh, I've memorized so much of the King James Bible, but we use words differently than uh, than a lot of people even speaking English use them in 1611. So the better translation there would be, lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's it's not that, uh, that that God tempts us as if he's hoping we'll sin in order that he can judge us, uh, but it's like the book of Job. That's the best way to understand it. God allowed Job to be tested. Jesus said it's all right to pray that that testing, you know, uh, uh, not come and, uh, and uh, in our lives in, in, in full volume. Certainly testing comes into every one of our lives. Uh, to, to be tested is, uh, is to, to be shown authentic in faith. But the most important thing is Jesus says, pray, but deliver us from the evil one. It's not just from evil. It's, it's from the evil one. And uh, we need that rescue from the evil one every single day. You know, I, I think of as a parent puts a child to sleep at night, you want to pray, you know, deliver this little one from the evil one. Uh, protect this little one. And as much as we pray that for our children, we need to pray it for ourselves. Yes, yes. What does the Lord's Prayer teach us about the character of God? You know, I think that the first thing is, is that God, who is perfect in every way, righteous and holy, invites us in Christ. And by the way, it's a prayer for Christians. It's for those who have come to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and, and have repented of their sins and are His. It's the invitation to come before a God who loves us and wants us. What it says about God's character is exactly what's revealed in Scripture that uh, he is a holy and righteous God who's a God of mercy and of grace. And by that mercy and grace, we get to go and pray, hallowed be your name. May your name be be made holy. And that means in us. In other words, may the world see the power of God's salvation in us. We began our conversation just uh, focusing for a moment on the fact that uh, evangelicals in America today are largely prayerless or pray very little. What advice do you give to those of us who want to become better at prayer and yet have perhaps struggled or abandoned uh, the, the notion altogether? I end where I began. I I am just so encouraged by the fact that Jesus' own disciples who were with him and saw him pray uh, had to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And and so we, we understand that prayer is something we learn. And so I think a lot of evangelicals who don't pray or who feel very powerless or, or unfaithful in prayer, it's because their expectations of prayer are, are, are something very unrealistic. Instead, it's a conversation with God. It's time we spend with our Maker and our Redeemer. And Jesus said, when you pray, don't pile up a bunch of words. Don't try to impress God with uh, with language. Instead, just pray like this. Simple prayer, reciting the gospel, reminding who God the Father is, asking that his kingdom come, his will be done, asking for daily bread and for the forgiveness of sins and and for protection. You know, it's it's just the sweetest gift Christ gave his disciples. I think I think it's just you know for evangelicals, I would say this: uh, Jesus wanted his disciples to learn by this prayer how to have a life of prayer, and uh, and it starts with that small prayer we could say in twenty seconds. Well, I thank you so much for reintroducing this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, and again by extension, uh, inviting us into God's presence using this. Uh, this simple prayer. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today. Georgine, thank you. It's always good to be with you. Thanks, Dr. Moeller.
Again, the book is titled A Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And it really begs uh, the question, what is our prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? I know as I've uh, gone through the book, it's, uh, it's caused me to rethink, am I... Uh, taking seriously the command of Christ to pray. We didn't talk about it in our conversation, but Matthew 6, 13 tells us, Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, and we know how that goes. Many Christians who regularly say the Lord's Prayer in church services every week or remember a version uh, they memorized as a child recite concluding the words that don't appear in uh, some of the modern translations, but it's an important um, end um, uh, to a very important prayer. He writes in the book that um, how we pray and the very act of praying uh, is a theological uh, statement, and his book certainly walks us through the theology of praying. He writes that every generation of Christians must learn to make the request, like the disciples before them, Lord, teach us to pray. Every generation of Christians must also remember that Jesus' response to that question now is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. If we would have the Lord himself teach us how to pray, then we must turn to the Lord's Prayer for instruction. As the book has shown, each petition is a theology lesson, lesson rather in itself. None of Jesus' words were careless, and this is particularly true of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer turned the world upside down. This prayer is dangerous, overturning the kingdom of the principalities of the powers of the world. This prayer is hopeful, expecting the kingdom of God to come in fullness with Christ on the throne. This prayer is compassionate, teaching us to call God our Father and depend on Him for our every meal. This prayer is reverent, showing that nothing is more sacred than the name of God. This prayer is good news, reminding each of us that God forgives sin and delivers us from the powers of darkness. Again, the prayer that turned the world, turns the world upside down. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from one of our Christian schools in the area, North Clackamas Christian. We'll be back. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.